we're working on it. Okay. Okay. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Yes. For guys and guys night, after we finish our study, we'll be doing more of this type of stuff. So Kendall has a great lesson in plan. Yep. So. And it will be good for anybody. So. All right. Are there more papers? Um, everybody pass them out. And you can have mine. It's already mine. That's okay. We're out? Are we out? We're good? Okay. Because I have, I have it on my phone, so I can hand. Okay. All right. Papers. These. Those are different. No, it's just this one. I think that's that's Randall's notes. You don't want that. All right. I think Randall got it. All right. Does everybody have notes? Okay. You sure? Okay. You We good, Randall? All right, so tonight we are going to be covering a hefty topic. This topic is biblical interpretation. In most <laughs> seminaries, the class that you would take for this is considered the hardest class you can take in seminary. So please understand that the, the talk we're going to have tonight and possibly next week if we end up going over time is very much a bird's eye overview and will likely cause you to have more questions than we have answers for tonight. Um, if you have questions, please hold them to the end because there's a lot of ground that we're going to be covering tonight. I want to start off with introducing myself for those who may not know my name yet. I am Kendall. I went to a Bible college for my undergraduate and I had the opportunity to study at a school that's motto is for Christ and scripture. Um, we studied the Word of God. We studied how to interpret it. We studied all of these things. But before I went to that school, I was the kid that would carry around my Bible all the time in high school and never open it. Okay? I did not read my Bible the way that I should have. And that led to a lot of people asking me questions and me not having any answers for them because I didn't actually read my Bible. I didn't apply any sort of knowledge that I was getting from God's word. And so I was misspeaking all the time, giving wrong information all the time. That's why biblical interpretation is so important. Biblical interpretation is accurately reading the Bible, deciding what it means, and applying inf that information to our lives in the right way. That's the three main points, okay? That's right at the top of your page. Um, that may not sound so difficult. You're like, well, this is a book just like, any other book, right? We can read it, we can understand it, it's in English, where we live in the blessed opportunity of having the Word of God in our native language. We don't have to translate it from another language. People have already done that work for us. But it's actually a lot harder than you would first imagine. There's a lot more information there, things that are not directly stated in the text, yet still change and completely change our understanding of the passage. And that's what completely changed my way of thinking about the Bible when I first went into Masters. 
I went in, like I said, carrying the Bible around, believing it was the Word of God, but not actually practicing it in my own life. I didn't really study it every day. I didn't read it. I had read maybe five books of my Bible before going into Master's. And then I went into Master's, and I was constantly going, that's in there? Wait, I had no idea that that was in there. There's all of this depth and this knowledge and that can totally and completely transform your life like it did mine. And my goal tonight is to give you a jumping off board, a springboard to learning more about the Bible, why it's important, and how to study it, how to read it, and apply that information to your life. So please know that if you have questions about this, come to me, come to Randall, come to Nancy. We're more than happy to answer them. Um, go, to go to your pastors. They will have information on that as well. But this is very much a bird's eye view of all of this information. I'm only trying to expose you to it. I'm not trying to tell you entirely how to use all of it all at once, okay? So why is this important? Well, the first reason that this is important is that we should care. That's my first point. We should care because it, the Bible is God's word. We will be held accountable for what we say about him and what he says. We are his ambassadors, the Bible says, and we are to uh, teach his word with accuracy. James 3, verse 1 through 3, I have marked there. Um, it's one that I take to heart um, because it's quite literal. Yeah. Um, care. care. Yeah. Got to be listening because I'm going to go fast. Okay. <laughs> just a just fair warning. <laughs> we will review, but fair warning. Um, I am going to be trying to, to quickly go through this. Okay. Um, the James 3, verse 1 through 3 says, My brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. For we all stumble in many things. If anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle the whole body. Indeed, we put bits in horses' mouths that they may obey us, and we turn their whole body. And then I'm continuing on in verse 4. Look also at ships. Although they are so large and are driven by fierce winds, they are turned by a very small rudder wherever the pilot desires. Even so, the tongue is a little member and boasts great things. Basically, that means that your tongue tells the direction where your whole ship, your whole body is going. Okay? Wouldn't you want your words to match God's words if that were true? We should take great care to make sure that our words match what God says. Okay? Next blank, number two, is love. We are to love the Lord with all of our mind. Last week we heard the, the first and greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. Right? Reading the Bible and praying are two of the best ways that we can allow God to work in our mind. The Lord will transform your mind and give you a new spirit if you spend time in his word. That is how he does that. That's part of your sanctification. That's part of you growing in Christ and walking anew in him. Sanctification. 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 That is the 
big fancy theological term that basically means your growth in Christ. Okay? That's the big word that, that the pastors will teach you. That means your growth in Christ. The process that by which you become more like him. That's sanctification. The biggest part of your sanctification is praying and reading your Bible. If you're not doing that, you will not be growing in Christ. It's as simple as that. It's very difficult for you to grow in Christ. In our leadership class on Saturday, we were reading about reasons why pastors fell. And one of the top reasons why pastors fell into sin, it was because they did not have time in the word. It's that serious. Um, this is a very important topic, and that's why I'm so passionate about it. Like, you talk to me on it, about it one-on-one, -on -one. And reading the Bible is one of my one of my most one of my biggest passions. Getting it right is one of my biggest passions. It's because it's so important to our walk as Christians. Um, and then number three is apply, and it kind of goes along the same with what I was saying in number two. How do we know we're living the way God wants us to? By reading the Bible and applying His Word to our lives. That's how we know. God already told us everything that we need to know about life and godliness. That's what scripture says. Second uh, Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for reproof, for correction, for teaching, for training in righteousness. Everything that you need for those things is breathed out by God in his word. It's already here for you. And like I said already, you have the blessed gift of being in a country where the Bible is in your native language. That's not the case. That wasn't always the case for English. Um, Randall will talk more about that maybe. Maybe. Um, maybe. I don't know. Uh, I don't know that we're going to get into the whole translation history of the Bible tonight. But um, the, that didn't happen until the 1500s that they had an English Bible. Um, so it wasn't always in English. We weren't always able to do this, to read it, to study it, to apply it. We have that gift. So we should apply it, right? Okay, so can you, I, can go I throw ahead. Can I an example? <clears throat> if you, and I was hoping Andrew would be here because he went to, uh, auto mechanics, uh, school at, uh, CRC. <clears throat> and, but whether you go, uh, is any, uh, how many people are going to school right now for you? Or have gone to school for anything? Okay, a bunch of people. Okay, so. For anything. I mean anything. It starts at kindergarten all the way up. No. You've been to kindergarten. <laughs> <laughs> that would be everybody in the room. <laughs> yeah, well, my, my point is uh, you have teachers mm -hmm. and you have textbooks. And if you're going to go into a um, what you consider to be your career or your job or your calling, what, what you want to do, chances are you're not going to kind of wing it and do it on your own. You're going to have somebody instruct you. You're going to go to the best teacher you can afford to have, or you're going to go to a, or read books that can educate you. And I would suggest that if you're an upper level education, like beyond high school, you're probably paying money for it. Anybody here pay money for any of their education? Was it, is it a lot of money? Yes. <laughs> yeah. okay, so, so there's a value placed on it. 
So if you're going to buy, and textbooks are expensive. Somebody was telling me the other day, somebody, who was telling me that a textbook was like $1,500 or something yes. like that? Yes. Yeah. What, what class was that? I said, no, it's not, you're pulling my leg. No, 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 really, that's what it costs. I go, wow. But anyway, a textbooks can easily cost $100, $200, right, in college, college course? Huh? $2,000 for textbooks. Yeah. So, so you're, there's a value placed on learning. So if you think about it, um, you might want to put your name in a textbook, God's textbook, so that you know it's yours, so it doesn't disappear. Not there anymore. And... <laughs> and, uh, yeah, it disappeared. Uh, and, and also the value. What value do we place on learning God's word? We've spent all this money on our career education or, mm -hmm. or whatever we're going to do. But as I was saying to Kendall, how many algebra books are you going to read down the road? How many trigonometry books? How, how yep. many biology yep. books? How many, how many English books on how to write? You're probably not. As soon as you're done with them, you hope you never see them again, for the most part. But how many people are thinking that they're going to be reading their Bible all the way to the end of their life? Yep. Most people yep. that consider themselves a Christian. So that's why we're doing this class, in that you should be investing some time and some effort, maybe even some ducats, that, that yep. money, in ancient terms. Ducats, 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 depends on what part of the, the world you're from. And and invest in that. Spend some time in it. And we're going to get into a little bit of that About later on. Why? Yeah. So the first primary key to good interpretation. You might be able to guess what the blanks are going to be. Yeah. Believe that the Bible is the word of God. <laughs> Fully and completely. The Bible as we have it in our hands is the word of God. Is it inerrant? It is inerrant. Inerrant is a big theological term meaning without error. Okay? What? There's no mistakes? There's no mistakes. We're going to get into how we can trust that there are no mistakes in our English translation. But in summary, there are no mistakes. It is the most reliable historical document known to man not even, a typo. not even there there might be mistakes with punctuation but that's because greek and hebrew don't have actual punctuation marks so um there there's some mistakes in that but only because they don't actually have those things so um there's no such thing as a period mark in greek so um there's those the, there are those kinds of mistakes but by and large the, the actual words and the language match all of that. And actually, Randall is going to get into that. So um, I think that's the next that section, right? Randall. How do we know that the Bible is the word of God? How can we trust that? Oh, okay. Okay. That's Randall's section. Okay, but I, I didn't fill in the blanks. I'm, I'm no, sure. that's okay. Uh, your, your job is to listen to Randall speak <laughs> and get two new facts that you learned oh about oh the Bible word. Just two. Well, I... There's going to be more than that, probably, but... So, I, I brought a couple of books out, and they're just a few. I mean, in... in whoop, oh, okay, we're, we're doing that. That's right. Can you hear me? Yeah. So, 
there's lots of different ways to find find these things out. You don't want to get a five pound book. That's not five five and a half pound book. What but is that called? That's a biblical interpretation. Yeah, that's Inter the introduction. introduction. <laughs> that's just that's to start it. At, at, in the seminary I went to, that it's a it's like a flunk out course. I mean, if you can't pass that, you're not going to pass seminary, and it's the hardest course. Uh, but to to Kendall's point, I've got something called the case for Christ. Anybody here? Mm -hmm. the case? Anybody read it? It's all right. It's all right. I did. Did you read it? We're studying it. Yeah. Oh, you're <laughs> studying it. That's yeah, right. The video part. Saying. You're doing the a smaller version of this, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And that's awesome. You guys really, really should take part part of this. So you have things in here. I guess I need to put on my my glasses, which are somewhere. I got some brand new glasses. I got at Bel Air. 1.25 reading glasses. Whoa! Look at that. That is ama amazing. So here's the deal. I don't need to look at the book. Um, the way it's pointed out when you do try to figure out if the Bible is is accurate. Uh, and I may get a little of the, few of the actual numbers because I didn't write them down mixed up. But when you look at historic documents, uh, anybody hear of uh, the Iliad and the Odyssey? Okay, you, some of you know where I'm going with this. It's considered, it, you t if you go to any school uh, that studies, studies Western civilization, you will study <coughs> things like that, the Iliad and the Odyssey. Okay, it's considered an ancient document that was written thousands of years ago, right? Okay, nobody will argue that, nobody, no professor, everybody takes it for granted. But there's only a few copies of it. There's only a few actual, and when I say copies, they didn't have copy machines. They had um, the written, written, written mm -hmm. on, on scrolls or whatever, papyrus or whatever, paper or lambskin or whatever they were using at the time. And there's, I could go through, um, uh, you know, that was written by Homer. And so you can go through, whether it's Greek culture or Roman culture or um, uh, Mesopotamian culture or Chinese culture, any culture you want to pick, they have ancient documents. Where the Bible fits in, these scriptures, is that there's way more original doc or copies, let's call them copies, than any other document ever made. There's something like, I don't know, 24, 2,500 um, uh, copies of the New Testament. And, and there's pieces, too. There's bits and pieces around as well, both the new and the old, dating back to... Right. Um, well, technically, the, the, there's, only, there's only two full, um, two yeah. complete copies that are made. One, one is in Rome, in the Vatican, and the other one's in England mm -hmm. in, a, in a museum. Uh, the other ones are... The, the bits and pieces I'm talking about that they put all that stuff together. But what it does, it validates the, um, the inerrancy mm -hmm. and the, the fact that it was written and wasn't made up because all these different documents all match up. And then you go to another one that goes into the Old Testament. You've heard of the, what was discovered in, what was it, 1948 mm -hmm. in, um, in Israel? Mm -hmm. What was discovered in 1948? The Dead Sea Scrolls. Yeah, Dead Sea Anybody hear of the Dead Sea Scrolls? Yeah. Okay, they're semi-famous. I say semi because outside of uh, Jewish and Christian faith, they're considered, what? What are the Dead Sea? What? Who? What? So um, 
By the way, Nancy floated in the Dead Sea, so in case you want to know what it's like, just ask her. She'll tell you. Uh, so, and we saw the scrolls. And we saw the scrolls, and they're under <laughs> very close guard. Security. Yeah, it's incredible how they keep the air out and oxygen and all this stuff so they don't deteriorate. So what they found was this, this uh, and I'm condensing this, this, this group of, um, what were they called? Um, huh? No, 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 the people. Uh, the people was a, a sect that moved out of the main cities and went out to the, uh, way out to the countryside near the Dead Sea, and they lived in caves, and near caves. And so they put together um, what, the, what they found in 1948 in these geological uh, uh, diggings was a complete set, virtually a complete set, of the Old Testament. And what they found, because they hadn't had, 1948, that's a recent find. Okay, so they compared the words without the periods, because mm -hmm. they didn't, or the, there's, there's no, no, and no semicolons or colons or anything. No, not even commas, I don't think. Mm -hmm. So anyway, they compared those to what they already had found many years before, and word for word, they matched up with very, very minor, minor uh, variations. So it kind of like it was the biggest exclamation point in uh, in the Judeo-Christian -Christ um, uh, religions. Like, oh my gosh, they match up. It's for real. There's, it's no joke. So I'm just giving you two examples of of how accurate the physical documentation is of the Bible. And I'll, I'll add one more fact. When the Jewish writers, um, Hebrew is an oral language. Everybody knows that, right? Good. Okay. Uh, Greek was not an oral language, but Hebrew was. So what the Jews did is that they told stories, and when you went to school, you memorized by hearing the stories. So they would memorize Genesis, Deuteronomy, Numbers, <laughs> by hearing it and remembering it. Wow, that's quite a memory. Uh, I would fail that course. But anyway, they, they would do it. But l much later on, I'm not going to go into the years, they decided they, they needed to put it in writing, even though they were oral language. They put it in writing. So they had scholars, and what are called scribes, very carefully and meticulously write all the, that was passed through the generations, all this stuff down, what we now call the Old Testament. So they would write it down. And what they would do is they would do individually, they would write it. Another person would write it. Another person would write it, write it out. And then they would compare the pages. Or they would compare a book of the Bible. And if there was one mistake, like let's say there was four of them writing it down. If one of them had one mistake, one letter was wrong, it's not what, some, what the other three had, they would destroy whatever they did and start all over again. You understand where I'm going with that? So in other words, when they were copying and making handwritten copies, they were making sure of its accuracy that was beyond question. It was going to be exact. So whatever one person had, another person had, the rest of the Jewish civilization had, it was going to be exactly the same thing over and over and over again. So um, uh, they called it the Septuagint. And so that, that proves the accuracy 
of the Bible, all right, in very, very short terms. All right, take it away. Okay. There could be a lot more said about this than we're going to have time to do tonight. If you have an interest in studying this, guys, you can go to Guys Night because that's what they're talking about. Girls, we can talk about it too, okay? So um, the, the best analogy I have for it um, that, I've, that I've heard in the past was if you were to take a CD player and you had a CD that was scratched, you start hearing little uh, crackles above the sound, right? But a well-loved CD, CD, if you were playing it for a dog, for example, and it was your voice so that the dog wouldn't miss you when you were gone, um, <laughs> this well-loved CD would start getting scratches, but the dog would still recognize its master's voice, right? It's the same way with the Word of God. The small little tiny mistakes that are still there even after all of that because we are human and fallen and, yes, we do make mistakes. But there's so few in the Bible that you can still hear the master's voice and it is still very much so the breathing word of God. Yes? Have any of those mistakes uh, kind of been in passages that are kind of really important? Not to my knowledge. I haven't really studied it in depth, but um, to my knowledge, no. Um, most of the, again, most of the mistakes that are there are um, grammatical stuff um, because the Greek, the Greek and Hebrew have a very different grammatical structure than our language does. I mean, in Greek, you have six verb tenses for example, um, and they, they don't talk about past, present, and future either. So the verb tenses have to do with something completely different in Greek than what we're used to in English. So there's a lot of things like that that can change um, how you understand the grammar of a passage, um, and that has definitely affected stuff a little bit. But again, it's so small, it's like 99.9% .9 of the Bible is, matches the original documents that we have dating back to only 50 years after these people would have lived. Um, that's unheard of, too. Um, it would have gone back, the next closest thing is the Iliad and the Odyssey. And the Iliad and the Odyssey, the, the manuscript that we have closest to Homer is 600 years after Homer lived. And we have fragments of the Bible dating back to 50 years after Jesus died. Unheard of. By people that Unheard knew. of. Written by people that knew him. Okay? So there's a lot of evidence to support the claim that the Bible is the word of God. And if you're interested in studying more, I have resources at the back of your packet that we'll go over at the end that have all sorts of websites and stuff that you can go to for that. Okay? Um, so when we read the Bible, we also need to consider the following. There are seven, what I like to call, secondary keys to understanding the Bible. Um, or five secondary keys. Number one is the historical background. Okay? And again, this is all going to be very much overview. Right? Uh, historical background. That means what has happened, what's happening to the people at the time. What was going on in history? Because these, these books were written a long time ago, right? 
So what was going on in their culture had an impact on what Jesus was saying to them. An example of this was Pilate asking if Jesus was king of the Jews. Why is that important? Well, it's important because historically at the time, there were a lot of Jewish uprisings going on. They were under control of the Romans, under control of Caesar, and there were oodles and oodles of Jewish uprisings of people claiming to be the Messiah, the savior of the Jewish people, claiming to be king of the Jews, and then leading a revolt against the, Ro the Romans. Okay, and Pilate was a Roman governor. So he was concerned that Jesus was starting a revolt against the Roman Empire when he was brought before Pilate. Does this make sense to everybody? Okay, so understanding that historical background adds a lot more depth to that particular verse. There are countless other examples that I could go into, but for the sake of time, I'm not going to. But know that one of the big things that impacts your reading of the Bible is historical background, okay? And let me just point out something yeah. there too. Um, you may have heard this name, um, if I get it right, Josephus. Mm -hmm. People have heard of that. So Josephus was a, uh, a non-Christian, as far as anybody knows, never believed in Jesus, lived at the time of Jesus, and was a historian. And he, would, um, he was assigned by the Romans, he was Jewish, and he was assigned by the Romans to keep a historical record of things. Rome was real big. They were very proud of their, um, their government and what they did. So they wanted the whole world they, to be, be down in infamy. So they, they recorded much of their conquering countries. And they wanted to know what we did and how many people died and this, that. They, they were big on history. And so uh, Josephus was the, one of the best known, if not the best known historian of the time. So he documents a lot of the things that, um, like I'm, I'm thought of that with Pontius Pilate, uh, that show that a lot of the people you read about in the Bible, including Jesus, are noted um, by some of those historical documents. That's outside of what's written in the Bible. Okay. In other words, even if you don't believe in the Bible, there is historical evidence and fact that proves that Jesus was a real person. Yes. Right. He was a real person. Um, and the book Case for Christ does a really good job of explaining all of that in, in much greater depth. So, um, of course, we can't go through all of that tonight, unfortunately. I mean, it's a great topic. I love talking about it. But we just don't have time tonight. But yes, there is historical evidence to support that Jesus actually lived, that this stuff actually happened. Okay. Um, your next, yeah, yeah, um, your next important aspect, so the first one was historical background, your next one is cultural background. The understanding of the people, the original people that were, t that, um, would have heard all of these words at, at first is different than our understanding of it today. That's true. But we need not go too wild with this, okay? There's some groups that we might talk about later on in other talks that really go a little bit off the wall with that. Um, but 
it is important for us to take into account the fact that there are cultural differences between our culture and the people in the back, back in that time. An example of this would have been the Canaanite genocide. And we all know genocide means killing of lots and lots of people. In the Old Testament, God commands the genocide of the Canaanite people. This happens in Joshua. You're like, well, why would a good and loving God command the mass murder of a whole group of people? Well, it's because the Canaanites practiced child sacrifice, among other things. Their religious practices were completely and totally evil and against what God commanded. Okay? So, and he, did, he gave the people t chance and chance again and again and again, the Canaanite people, he gave them chances to come back and to turn away from that, and they didn't, okay? That's part of why um, the Israelites were in, in Egypt for 400 years. It's because the Canaanites, the lives of the Canaanites had not, their sin had not come into its fullness. There was still a chance for them to come back. And so God was giving them that chance by having Israel stay for 400 years in Egypt before he sent them to go and do the genocide. Okay. Um, that is a cultural background thing that can shape our understanding of the text. It's a lot more understandable for God to demand that of the Canaanites when you understand that they were sacrificing their children as part of a spiritual worship. Right. Um, another example of this was Job tearing his clothes. Okay. In the Bible, there's the story of this man who loses everything. I mean land, house, family, everything, right? He was very rich. He was the wealthiest man in the community, and he loses everything all in one day, right? And he tears his clothes. He rips his clothes. In our culture, we're like, what? Why are you ripping your clothes? In the Jewish culture, this was a sign of extreme distress, okay? They're extremely upset and unhappy with what's going on so they rip their clothes to show that great distress they might also pour ashes on their head okay those are things that you'll see in scripture in all other places too king josiah comes to mind okay um there it's all over the place and still in jewish um funerals they will pin a piece of clothing a piece of clothing to their garment to show distress they don't do the full ripping that they used to do back in Bible times. They don't wear sackcloth? No. But they will pin, um, pin torn clothes to their garments, to their clothes, uh, when they go to a funeral. Okay? So that's a cultural understanding that changes your understanding of the text. The Sermon on the Mount is another passage that has lots of cultural things in it. Okay? Things that people used to believe, and then Jesus goes, You believe this, but I tell you... And then he tells them new things that they didn't understand about that passage before. Okay. Um, the next key. Can, it, can I give, yeah. a, let me, let me give a, another example to kind of bring it home? You keep, you're keeping track of time, which is really good. I, I rarely do that. Um, so <clears throat> to, to, to kind of bring it home to the cult, our culture. So if we went back not very far to say our grandparents' time. Now, my grandparents are different age than your grandparents. So I'm going to use my grandparents as an example. My grandparents were, uh, were born 
before the 20th century. They were born in the 1800s, my grandparents. So can you imagine, without going into any detail, how different the culture was then? There were no automobiles. Their clothing was different. Their, uh, what they ate and they drank was primarily different. I know it's hard to believe, but they, they didn't even have the internet then. They didn't have computers. No Wi-Fi? No Wi-Fi, no cars. Um, no toasters. No toasters and no microwaves. And they may not have even had, uh, a, when was that electricity? Uh, light bulb. I'm thinking of the light bulb. Yeah, so it was around there. So they were just getting into the light energy. And that's just the, um, the things you could see, feel, and touch. Their way of thinking was different. This, this was a time where um, they were called, um, oh, what were they called? Uh, it goes back to England. They, you know, uh, kind of like that, but they're Victoria, uh, they, Victorians. They, 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 the, the clothing they wear, women dressed a certain way. Now, thinking of culture, um, they would wear thing, uh, dresses that would button up to the top. <coughs> and their dresses would, dresses would go where? all the way down to their ankles. And they had boots that came up to here, too. So they were um, dressed differently. And that was the culture. They, they would, it, it would be obscene for them to see what women wear now, because the culture and the time is different. OK? So you understand where I'm going with this? The language was different. So everything about the culture, and I'm just going back, what, one? Two generations. That's not very far. That's like a little over a hundred years. Four. Oh, four. I'm, yeah, four. Yeah, more. Four, four, three, three to four generations. I forgot about you guys. Uh, going back. Imagine if you went back four hundred years, or a millennia, one thousand years, or two thousand years. You see, the culture and the books of the Bible were written at these different cultural times in not the same place and not by the same author. So when you think of culture, it's kind of hard to think when you look at, okay, the culture aspect, yeah, I kind of get that. But it's all, they're all kind of old to me in the Bible times. But think back in our, think in our own culture. Things are totally different, and they, they're always changing. So you have to take that cultural context and the author who is writing for those people at that particular time. <laughs> right. And like you, right. yeah. <laughs> you, you, you see that all throughout, like I have to deal with that in the classroom too. I have um, all the, I only have one Caucasian student in my classroom out of 25 students. So there's different cultural understandings and you have to take that into account when you're teaching a lesson. You have to think of the kid that grew up in a culture that didn't have a written language before 30 years ago, right? So reading for him is going to be an especially hard challenge, right? 
Um, there, but when you're reinterpreting the Bible, you got to make sure that you're understanding things the way that the original people would have understood it. All right. And there's a lot more depth that you can get from that if you think about things that way. Okay. Um, the next key is the language. Okay. You may not know this, but the Bible was originally written in three languages, not just two. That would be Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic. Okay. Um, that was an Aramaic was another language that was spoken around the time that uh, the Jews were in captivity with the Romans. Okay. It was one of the languages that they would speak. Um, this is an important thing to consider because in those languages there are different nuances to words that are not in our language. An example of this would be Jesus asking Peter, do you love me? There's a passage where Jesus asks Peter, do you love me? And Peter's like, yes, I do, Lord. And then he asks again, do you love me? Yes, I do, Lord. And then Jesus asks again, Simon Peter, do you love me? He says, yes, I do, Lord. You know I do. And Jesus says, then feed my sheep. You might be looking at going, well, why on earth is Jesus asking the same question over and over and over again? It's because in Greek, there are actually four different words for the word love. Okay? Our word love covers everything from I love pizza to... To, I love my mother, or I love my husband, or wife, or boyfriend, or girlfriend, right? Completely different ideas. You do not love pizza the same way that you love your boyfriend or girlfriend. No. <laughs> so, in Greek, there are actually four kinds of love. In our girls' study, we've been when we meet, we've been studying those things, okay? Those four different kinds of love, all right? There's the eros, which is the love that you, you would have for a um, spouse, right? There's some romantic love. There's storge, which is family love. There's phileo, which is brotherly love. And then there's agape, which is sacrificial love, right? Okay, so... Each time Jesus asks Peter, do you love me? It's a different one of those three loves, those four loves, okay? It's not the same question, okay? He's like, Peter, do you storgate me? Do you love me like a friend? Peter, do you phileo me? Do you love me like family? Peter, do you agape me? Would you sacrifice for me? Very different questions, right? Okay. So that adds to our depth of our understanding. And there are passages upon passages upon passages that your interpretation changes when you understand the lingu linguistical implications of the text, the language and the impact that the language has on the text, okay? Um, so, and there's ones that I could get into, but it would be getting too much into the differences with Greek and Hebrew for tonight. Um, but it's important to understand that, that that's something that you should consider when you're reading a text and you're not understanding it. Well, perhaps there's something in the original languages that would help you. So going to a commentary to read, hey, is there something in the original languages that I'm, I'm just not getting in translation? It's lost in translation. 
that might help you understand what's going on in the text. A, a good, easy one, <clears throat> I know she's going to get to this to the end, but I don't want to forget it, is um, <clears throat> a free uh, online um, place for translations and uh, commentaries. Commentaries are simply somebody like a theological expert or a pastor uh, explaining what this particular part of the Bible, this scripture says as a commentary. And so, are you anybody familiar with the Blue Letter yes. Bible? Is that your favorite? I you were say that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. and, there's, and there's another one called, now I just forgot the name of it. What's the other one? The Blue Bible. Blue Letter Bible. Blue Letter Bible, and oh my gosh. Is it the one I put down? No. no. It's free and it's online. Some people prefer that now. It just it Bible yeah, Bible Gateway. Bible Gateway. Bible Gateway is good, but it doesn't have the commentary. So it's good for searching the Bible, um, but it will not have um, the commentaries, the added um, Bible pastors going through. So you know, Probably why I like Blue Letter Bible. So you can look, you can look it up. You can click on uh, uh, the phrase, a word, and it will take you to the original language. It will even have an audio voice that tells you what it sounds like. So when people come up like me to teach, you don't butcher it too badly. And uh, it will go to the source of what that word means or what its different meanings could be. Mm -hmm. And then you can do a search everywhere in the Bible where that word is used. I mean, everything you want to know, uh, it's almost like a little mini Bible college or a little mini uh, seminary on a biblical. In, yeah, and actually has a dictionary in there too, a biblical oh, yeah. dictionary. So it's, it's like it has everything you need to know for free, I emphasize. Mm -hmm. So if you're ever doing a study or ever read something or you're do, writing your own uh, teaching on it, you can say, okay, you know what? I better, I think I know what that means, but I better double check it Double check it with mm -hmm. a better source. So that's what you can go to with some, something like Blue Letter Bible. Yep. All right. Um, the fourth key and my favorite one to think about and to study is redemptive <coughs> history. Okay, that's a big term. Redemptive history is the history of man's fall, God sending his son to earth, Christ's crucifixion, his death on the cross, and his resurrection. Okay? It's that whole overarching uh, story. The climax of redemptive history, which is actually really the history of our earth. If you really to look at history through God's lens, you would look at it through redemptive history. You would look at it in the eyes of when did this happen? in relation to Christ's death and resurrection, okay? Um, the re climax of redemptive history is the cross. That's the culmination of it, all right? The culmination of the story. And there's a lot of things that can your understanding of it can change if you consider it uh, in relation to where it happened in that history, all right? An example of this is the genealogies. That is the, and so-and-so begat so-and-so, and so-and-so -and -so begat so-and-so. If you've ever re tried to read First Chronicles, the first nine chapters of First Chronicles are nothing, but and so-and-so begat so-and-so, and so-and-so begat so-and-so, and they had yeah. 10 years. Begat means gave birth to, had a kid, right? Okay? Nine chapters of this. 
like 50 verses in each chapter. And you can't pronounce any of them. And you cannot pronounce any of these names. They're like Zerubbabel and other, you know, interesting Bible names. You're like, why on earth do we care so much about genealogies? And the Hebrew people were crazy about genealogies. That's because of Genesis 3.15. Genesis 3.15, God promises Jesus. Okay? Genesis 3.15 is a verse that you should memorize. It's one that my Bible professor said that we should know so well that if he were to come into our dorm houses at 1 o'clock in the morning and wake us up from dead sleep, that we should be able to rattle off. So. Can somebody rattle that off? No. Nope. No. Um, somebody can. What's I can. 3.15? Genesis 3.15 is. I, I'm drawing a blank right now. Obviously, it's been a few years since I've been in college. When I was in college, I would have been able to rattle it off. Genesis 3.15. Um, this is God talking to Eve right after the fall of man. So the fall of man is when Adam and Eve ate the, tree, uh, the forbidden tree, the forbidden fruit from the forbidden tree. And God kicks them out of the garden because they sinned against him, right? They're no longer pure, so they can't live before him because man now is sinful, right? As he is doing this, he talks to the serpent, the one who betrayed Adam and Eve and tricked them into eating of the tree. He says, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Okay. Enmity. Enmity. First vocabulary term okay enmity basically means i will make you an enemy of okay he's saying i will make you an enemy of you and the woman eve okay and between your seed i will make you an enemy with your seed and her seed okay your children and her children will be enemies you will not be friends you will not get along okay he, the seed of the woman, shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. You're going to try to get him, but he's going to stomp on your head. He's going to cut off your head. He's not gonna, you're not going to be able to defeat him. Okay? The Jewish authors saw this, and they started going, I want to know who this person is. Okay? So the genealogies are this search for that seed, for the promise. That's the first promise of a Messiah that will come and save the Jewish people from the enemy. Okay? So they start this search, and they start going, okay, Adam and Eve had this kid, and they had these kids, and then that line went this way, and that line went this there, and they kept meticulous genealogies okay we care about the genealogies because this starts the search for the messiah this starts the search for the savior and the genealogies stop in matthew with jesus after matthew chapter one you never see another genealogy in the rest of scripture okay you just don't and it goes back quite a ways. It goes back quite a ways, like to Adam and Eve, right? 
if you open Matthew chapter 1, it starts off, actually, Matthew chapter 1 starts off with Abraham, okay? That was only three or four generations after Adam and Eve, okay? And it goes all the way through down to Jesus. This is super important, right? Because that is like Matthew is saying, look, guys, this Messiah, the Savior that we've been waiting for, he's here by stopping the genealogies at Jesus, okay? And that's important. Also, that's another historical background thing that helps you understand the book of Matthew is Matthew was writing to the Jewish people. So there's all sorts of references in the book of Matthew to the Jewish culture that are not explained to us because it's assumed that you already know it, okay? That's one of the references to the Jewish culture that we're not explained, all right? So that's why we have genealogies. That's why God cares so much about the genealogies, okay? It's because in redemptive history, that's what leads us to the Messiah, right? Super important. Okay, so, I know I keep saying, okay, yeah, so, this is my teacher voice. Um, our last point is scripture interprets scripture. We never take one verse and say that that one verse explains all of our theology, okay? We can't do that. Why not, you might ask. Well, if we do that, we are prone to making a mistake with our understanding of the verse. A lot of groups that claim to be Christian and they get off on one or two points get off because they do that. They take that one verse, that one passage, and bank everything off of that without taking all of the other verses into consideration as well. The Bible is one book, and it all agrees with each other, which is marvelous considering that it's actually 66 books written over 1,500 years of time. That's unheard of, right? But all of them agree with each other, and that should be something that we should take into consideration when we're reading the Bible and we're not understanding a passage. Again, another. I'm going to go back to the Canaanite genocide to explain this more, all right? We did ask the question, if God is slow to anger, why did he immediately punish the Canaanites? And my answer was, he didn't, right? How do I know that? Because the Bible says he didn't, all right? I wrote the verses out there for you. Genesis 15, 16 says, In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here for the sin of the Amorites, which is another term for Canaanites. They later, the Amorites later became the Canaanites has not yet reached its fullest measure. Okay, this is talking to, um, I forget the entire background of this passage, where it was in Genesis, but um, it's talking to the Jewish people before they go into Egypt and start living full-time in Egypt, okay? In the fourth generation, 400 years later, your descendants will come back here, back to the promised land. For the sin of the Amorites has not yet been fully committed, reached its fullest measure, okay? God gave them a chance. He gave them 400 years, right? That seems like a long That's time. a long time. Longer than this country's been around. That's longer than this country's been around, right? It's it's crazy long time to think about. You can't even comprehend that long of time. Um, then in Deuteronomy 20... 
Deuteronomy is the book of the law, okay? The Jewish people were supposed to follow each and every one of these laws, and there's like 600 laws in this book. It's like a crazy amount of laws to follow. But one of them was when you march up to attack a city, make its people an offer of peace. So every time they went to war with another group of people, they were supposed to offer them yet another chance to turn from their sin and walk away and offer a peace. Okay, so 400 years God waited and then he sent his people and his people gave, he gave, gave them yet another chance and they still said, no thanks. God is long-suffering. God is long-suffering. That means he's very patient with us, which is a good thing because we need his patience. No, I do, right? Okay, so we're going to go back and summarize a bit. That's it. That's all I have to say on this right now, okay? You can imagine this is very much a bird's eye view, right? There are some people that have whole <coughs> degrees in the subject. They spend four years studying the subject. We've got it down just tonight, though. <laughs> okay. Four years. Right. So if you're feeling a bit overwhelmed, it's okay. This is a lot of information to take in all at once. Okay. But your first key, believe the Bible is the word of God. Right. Then your secondary keys, look at the historical background. What was happening to the people at the time? Cultural background. What did the people believe? Language. The Bible was written in three languages. Okay, understand that, know that, and think about that when you're reading it. Redemptive history, the story of man's fall, Christ's death and his resurrection. Where does that take place, and where does this take place in that progress, right? And then scripture, interpret scripture. Never study a passage in isolation without taking in the rest of scripture as well. Don't do it. Don't fall into that, okay? Um... On the last page, you will see that I've put in a whole bunch of different resources that you can use to study this. And there's lots more out there. These are my favorite ones. These are ones that um, I have found very reliable and helpful in my own studies. Um, in the history of the Bible, the biggest one is Josh McDowell's Evidence That Demands a Verdict. Okay. That's a big, thick, very dense read. It's six and a half pounds. It's... it's the so it's bigger than that book. Bigger than it's bigger than that book, okay? If you time. really want to know all of the evidence that's out there to support the Bible, that's the book to get, but it's very difficult to read. A um, much smaller book would be that one, or um, John MacArthur's Is the Bible True, Really? Okay, that's a small little pamphlet. I should have brought it with me tonight. It's a small little pamphlet. It's written like a narrative. It's very easy to understand, but it gives you the general information that you would need to understand that, yes, there is historical evidence to support that the Bible was real, okay? And it's actually the Word of God. Um, and online sermons from uh, Grace to You, which is John MacArthur's website, <coughs> Desiring God, which is John Piper's website, and um, the CARM, which is a Christian apologetics website. They're wonderful. They have short articles that have all of this information as well. Apologetics is uh, giving a reason for the faith. 
Okay. It's being sorry you're a Christian. No. No, it's um in 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 the classical education and in, in the Greek culture when you were talking and giving a reason for something, you were giving an apology for it. So apologetics is giving a reason for the faith. All right. Um you also have um, there's all of the secondary keys that I mentioned. There's all sorts of resources there as well. Um, the sermon and websites I've already mentioned, BibleStudyTools.com. It's also like the Blue Leather Bible, very similar website. Um, Matthew Henry's commentary is fantastic. It's a bit denser of a read, but it's really good. How old was Matthew Henry? That was like in the 1700s, 1800s, something like that. He he has been <laughs> he he has been like the go-to resource for pastors for centuries. So he's like that's like one of the the authority commentaries. If you really want to look up something in a commentary, that'd be the first one I would go to. Um, any commentary by the founders of the faith. Those would be Charles Spurgeon, who was a pastor in the 1800s. That was our age. He was 19 when he took his first pastorate. It's amazing. Um, Prince of Preachers. Yeah, he's known as the Prince of Preachers, so he's a good one to look up. Um, Martin Luther, um, John Calvin, George Whitefield. You might know him from studying Sinners in the Hand of an Angry God. He wrote that sermon. Um, and John and Charles Wesley. There's lots of hymns that were written by them, but they're also uh, pastors. Let's hear so, it for the Wesleyans. Yes. Um, <laughs> so... Um, and then another resource would be a study Bible, like the one that Adam has. Are we still, are we, have we voted on that? <laughs> have I mean, we voted that that's, that's his? Um, that's a great Bible, by the way. Yeah, Bible. study Bibles are fantastic because they are actual Bibles, <clears throat> but they have notes inside of them that explain all of this stuff, okay? Awesome. It's like 50 bucks, but it's worth it, okay? Because oh, it's got all of that. awesome study Bible called the Fire Bible. Okay. Yeah. Talk to Nancy and Randall if you want one. They could talk get that. Um, some other ones some other ones that I really like. Um, I personally have two of these. I have the ESV study Bible. It's awesome because it contains map and other resources and it comes with a link to a website that has even more resources for you. Um ESV stands for extra extra special version no it's a um esv is one of the many english translations of the bible it's one of the more reliable ones so um then you have john MacArthur's study bible i know i talk about macarthur a lot he was the president of my college that i went to in southern california so i take him in very high regard because everything that i know about the bible comes from his school um and then uh, the Reformation Study Bible, which will have everything from Martin Luther and John Calvin's notes put in the notes of the Study Bible. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's a good, those are good, too. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I've never seen that. It sounds really good. Yeah. So, yeah. 
Grant, do you have a question? My version, I, version I have is the is the English Standard Version. That's good. That's a good one to use. Yeah, otherwise known as ESV. ESV, I know that. Okay. And again, the the differences in translation. I know some of you might be thinking, well, if there's good translations and not so great ones, what what's the difference and why? Um, the, uh, the differences boil down to they're reading the Greek, they're seeing all of these differences in the Greek and Hebrew, and they're cho choosing different synonyms for those words. Some, some versions like the NASB stick more closely to using the actual words of the original languages, and so it's a lot more difficult to read, while other versions like the message tend to paraphrase, okay? They make it easier for you to read. Uh, yeah, it's not very accurate. It's its own thing. Um, it's an adaptation, yeah, that's a good word for it. Um, but, but that's really what it boils down to. Um, most translations that are out there, some good ones are NIV, NASB, New King James, um, uh, ESV. NIVR, so it's yeah. easier to read NIV. NIVR, yeah. Uh, different ones like that are all good. If you have questions about that, ask Nancy and Randall. We'll be able to point you to good Bibles for you to use. So, yeah, that's it. All right. Mm, or me. Wait a minute. What time is it? Is it 8.57? It's 8.57. Oh, my gosh. Okay, I've got three minutes. I'm yes. going to give you three minutes. Here, let me Go for it. Go for it. We're finishing on time. No, 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 no. She, co she covered most of it. This is just in case she got stuck and I was going to, no. She did, didn't she do an incredible job? That was, that was really good. I, I didn't think it was possible. I, I, I kept saying, is, you know, we can go to, a, to a part two the ne next week, but she, she, she made it through, so that, that was amazing. So I, I just want to bring up some stuff that, <clears throat> Again, just to stir your thinking, because a lot of people, when they think of interpreting the Bible, you touched on it, there's all these different versions. And of course, other religions um, attack Christianity, literally, uh, for having an unauthorized um, account of God's word, because it's obvious, because there's so many different uh, versions of the, of the Bible that she mentioned a, a bunch of them. But that's uh, totally untrue especially if you consider, again, the culture and how it started. If you go back to the King James Version, it was put out by the King of England back, I don't know how many years ago it was. It was a lot of years ago. I can't remember now how old the King James Version is. But it uses language that they used then. You don't, I don't think anybody in here, the these and the thous, the tits and the tattles and, and all this kind of things. Careful. Anyway, so... Um, <laughs> so, um, so we don't use that language. So what, what you see are versions that come up with that don't change everything. If, if you sat six different Bibles next to each other and read, picked a verse, just randomly pick a verse and go to the, all those verses in six different Bibles, mm -hmm. you're going to, by and large, essentially within 98, 99% see the same thing. It's like, I haven't heard it put that way. It's good. It's like doing a synonym search mm -hmm. on your computer and coming up with a different word that means basically the same thing. And modernizing it, you've got ESV, you've got um, NLT, mm -hmm. and some other versions that 
have just easier conversational English so it's easier for people like us to read it. So you don't have to go to Blue Letter Bible and look up and say, or get a study Bible and say, what does this mean? I don't understand this word. What, who uses that word? I don't know what that means. So you go in and uh, they, they make it easier to read. The other thing is <clears throat> a lot of um, people, including Christians, um, you, you wonder why, well, how come there's so many different denominations? How come there's so many different, uh, this domination uses this Bible, and this denomination uses that Bible, and this denomination says this about that particular scripture, and this other one says this, and can't they all agree? I mean, if it's this God's word, it's all the same, why don't they agree? Okay, that's my timer, I understand. That's your timer, but now that's my timer. I think yours is a little fit. Oh, it's right on time. Um, so, <laughs> yeah, that's a timer. It's time for her. She has to get up early. Almost. No, as a, it's to remind me to take something. Oh, it is. Okay. Okay. It's not to take a little more of Randall's teaching in. Is that what it is? Um, so, you know, I had several examples. I don't have time for the examples, but you're going to find in a few areas, and I'm just going to bring it down to the New Testament, not including the Old Testament where you look at some of the verses and theologians, Bible experts, uh, Christian denominations don't necessarily agree on what this particular verse says versus this particular verse. They disagree. Mm -hmm. And you know what? It's okay if they disagree. As long as they don't hurt each other, it's okay if they, if they disagree. But that's why, and, and the point here is that, that words matter. If you want to understand something or somebody wants to get in a debate or somebody wants to say, well, that's not what it means, think women in leadership or think the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. How, how are those all one? Uh, baptism. Um, think uh, divorce. Divorce. I mean, I, my mother got a divorce from my father years ago, uh, many years ago. I was 11 years old, so that was really a long time ago. And um, she was in the Catholic Church, and the Catholic Church says, based on one scripture in the Bible, you cannot remarry. <laughs> you can't remarry and still be a good Catholic in standing. So that one verse, is, it's just one single verse out of the whole Bible. And so they proved that by that particular verse. And so, I, I, and, and that's a whole verse, but you can find a word and say, oh, it's different. And so I, 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 um, I encourage you, I implore you to do your homework, to go in and study it yourself. Don't take my word on it, Kendall's word. Um, I would say, trust your pastor. Uh, but even then, <laughs> you don't have to second guess him. But everybody's looking at their, their, when you have Greek and you have Hebrew and Aramaic, it's like, okay, this is what we believe that word means, and I'm putting it into the context of all the different historical and cultural background and stuff, and this is what it means to me. And whoever that is, the teacher, is saying, this is what it means to me, so I'm teaching you this is what it should mean to you. Well, even commentaries in Bibles, they differ. They, they differ. So my point is, and that's a good example, if the experts disagree, they're not disagreeing on much. On much you know, uh, It's like, do you pronounce 
almonds, almonds, or almonds. That's a little Jerobism. Um, tomatoes, tomatoes. In India, I call them ornaments. For Christmas trees, we call them ornaments, but apparently that's wrong. Hey, if it's good for you, it work. It work. It works for me. The the point being, don't get hung up on those things, and that's where the Holy Spirit comes in, and that's what I'm going to end with. The the glue that holds all these different scriptures together. You know, how many books of the Bible? Sixty six. Books of the Bible written over how many years? 1,500 years. I mean, and how many different authors? Uh, 66. Not or more, actually more. No, some, not, no, not quite that many. But there's, there's other people that actually oh, are scribes that, that help the authors. But the, the point being, how do you pull all that together? And if you have to look at the original context of the writer, the author, to the people at that time, based on their culture, in that land, in that language, well, that's mind-boggling. How can that mean the same thing to me? And I'm doing a very short version of this. That's where the Holy Spirit comes in. Because what, the, what God was speaking to those people at that particular time with all those different contexts and that different, those different words very easily could mean something different for them at that time. And I'm going all the way back to the Old Testament. So when the New Testament writers are quoting the Old Testament, which was their Bible, that's what they were used to. But that could have been a thousand years before, or hundreds of years before. So fast forward the clock to 2000, what is it, 17, something like that? Time flies, you, you get, lose track of the years. Uh, the Holy Spirit will speak to you, and it's the, the proof text is in the, in the Bible, the Holy Spirit speaks to you and will speak to you what, it, what that truth is. So it may be speaking, we can read the same book of the Bible and, it may, and you may get a message from the Lord through the Holy Spirit <clears throat> that's different than the person sitting next to you or the person sitting next to you on this side. Or you at a different time. Or you at a different time. I've read things in the Bible Early on in my Christian talk, are you trying to tell me to hurry up? Are you hungry? No. Okay, good. Because I, I felt I was rushed for a second time. So it, you you may <laughs> you may have you may read something at this point in your walk, Christian walk, and then 10, 20, 30 years later, you read the same scriptures and say, I have a different meaning. That this is mean something different to me. You, you get where I'm going with this? That doesn't make scriptures wishy-washy. It doesn't make scriptures um, inerrant. It doesn't make them imperfect. It means that God is so huge that he knew he was going to have generation after generation, year after year, century after century of people of different cultures, different beliefs, different languages, and he had to make it relevant to all them over time. So that's how he does it. And it's alive, which is why the, you need to listen to the Spirit when you're speaking. And if you're not a Christian, if you haven't become a believer in Jesus Christ, um, the Bible tells us the Holy Spirit is not going to work through you to help you understand that, to help you realize what these words mean. So as a believer, you have that Holy Spirit power so you can discern what the truth is when you're reading the Word. And it becomes powerful, becomes alive. It, it's life-changing and life-transforming. Studying all of these things are the things that you can use to help the Holy Spirit do that in your life. 
All right, so there you go. Let me close this in a short prayer, and then we'll do announcements. Uh, sit near, look up. Oh, that's not sitting there back there. Okay. Ah. Uh, yeah. That was fun having sitting there. Yeah, that was the.